Welcome to the Republic of the Rio Grande. Episode 2, Young Zapata. I'm Brandon Seal. The parish priest asked the 22-year-old Maria Antonia Rocha de Zapata for the name of the baby boy that she clutched in her arms. Antonio, she answered him, the name echoing through the red sandstone church where she'd said farewell to her murdered father seven years prior, the same church where she'd married her husband, Ignacio, a year and a half before. Ignacio was about 26 years old now, the illegitimate child of a more prosperous resident of their town, Revilla. Ignacio was also, like Maria Antonia, a mulatto, a person of mixed but predominantly African descent, which meant that their newly baptized first son, Antonio Zapata, was also recorded as a mulatto in the baptismal register. The date was January 29, 1797. And that's pretty much all that the historical record tells us about the early life of Antonio Zapata. But that doesn't mean that we can't fill in some blanks. First off, the fact that Maria Antonia, Ignacio, and little Antonio were mulatos didn't make them exceptional in the frontier town of Revilla. By 1797, the year that Zapata was born, the population of Revilla was more than 30% mulato. The role of Afro-Mexicanos and Afro-Tejanos is badly undercovered in the academic literature in both Texas and Mexican history, and hopefully someone will do something about it, but I think part of the reason that it doesn't get more coverage is because the presence of men and women of African descent along the North American Spanish frontier didn't seem to merit much mention in the accounts of the time. Which isn't to say that race didn't matter, just that the shared hardships of the frontier were far more defining for people at the time than the color of their neighbor's skin. Because the frontier had an objective and largely agreed-upon way of defining the worth of a citizen by his or her ability to contribute to the community, and particularly to its defense. Mulatto shepherd boys were called on to fight alongside ranch-owning Spaniards, while mestiza servant girls stepped in to do the so-called men's work when the men didn't return home. One contemporary described the residents of the frontier as, quote, every citizen a worker, every worker a soldier, and every soldier a hero, end quote. Some contemporaries went even further, describing the Rio Granvias as straight-up, quote, warrior villages, adding that, quote, there was not a single resident that had not participated in military life, end quote. Of course, it's because they had to. By the 1770s, just a generation after Revilla and the other Rio Granvias had been founded, the Lipan Apaches had established themselves as a permanent presence and a permanent threat to the safety of the Vias. Recall that it had been the Lipanes in 1790 who had killed little Antonio's grandfather. The Lipan Apaches, in all likelihood, were put off by the newcomers mucking up all their watering holes with their goats and sheep and blocking all the easy crossing points of the Rio Grande with the towns that they founded there. And furthermore, the Lipanes had come to rely on stealing the livestock of the Rio Grande residents to sell to French traders in Louisiana for much-needed firearms which the Lipanes needed to defend themselves against a new enemy pressing down on them from the north, the Comanches. The presence of this truly existential threat meant that everyone was needed in the Rio Grande Vias, whether mulato or mestizo, indio or español. 
and by 1797, Bravia had grown to more than 1,125 people, representing a more than threefold increase since its founding in 1750. And almost the entire population increase in these years was from newcomers moving in. Infant mortality rates and the hazards of frontier life tended to prevent the population from growing from natural increase. Maria Antonia's sons, she would have two more after little Antonio, were thus welcome additions to the little frontier town, no matter their skin color or ancestry. After the horrific raids of 1790, which had killed Maria Antonia's father, the Lipanes had raided again in 1792 and 1793 which pretty well gives the lie to a claim that I made in the first season of this podcast, that by 1792, the Lipan Apaches were, quoting myself here, a broken nation, end quote. They weren't. If anything, the great battle of Soledad Creek in 1792, which I had referred to, simply drove the Lipan Apaches deeper into South Texas, into greater proximity with the Rio Grande Villas. And yet the Rio Grande Villas fought the Apaches to a piece as well, in 1799, when a Lipan chief came to Laredo and actually signed a treaty of friendship. The Rio Grande Villas felt pretty good about themselves for all of a few months. And then, later that same year, the Comanches appeared, hinting at the real reason that the Lipanes had sought peace, because they couldn't afford a two-front war. And yet the presence of their mortal enemies, the Comanches, would only drive the Lipanes to more desperate measures to provision themselves and protect their families, setting off another generation of frontier warfare along the Rio Grande. This was the decade that young Antonio Zapata was born into. And even setting aside the constant attacks by Indios Barbaros, as they called the Apaches and Comanches, life in the Rio Grande Villas was hard. His mother worked as a house servant, and his father as a vaquero. As you might imagine, these weren't high-paying jobs. They may not have paid in cash at all. Antonio's parents might have been paid simply in livestock, which the region was rich in, and which they would have supplemented with a little garden at home, growing corn, beans, squash, and maybe some melons. Education was more of an informal affair in such a community, and if Antonio and his brothers were ever taught to read and write, they would have been the exception. Antonio's practical education, and frankly, his distraction from the hardships of life, came in the form of games. And the games of this region were almost entirely horse-based. Proto-rodeo events like steer wrestling, bronc busting, and horse racing. As soon as young Antonio Zapata proved himself proficient enough in these games, he would have been sent out to help his father on the range. I like historian J.J. Gallegos' description of a young vaquero's upbringing. Quote, A vaquero's life in the lower Rio Grande was one of enduring hardships. He often faced the intemperate extremes of life-sapping heat waves and bone-chilling nortes. He ranged the territory that was an arid chaparral, where white caliche dust was easily disturbed into a suffocating aerosol cloud. The dust would envelop the perspiring vaquero and cake on his skin, and further dry out an already parched throat. He became a jinete, an expert horseman, whose equestrian skills came to be admired and respected by the Anglo-Texans. One exclaimed that, quote, rancheros are unsurpassed by any people in horsemanship, end quote. And another marveled that, quote, they are astonishingly expert in their management of horses, not surpassed perhaps by any other people on this globe, end quote. 
A vaquero, surviving an apprenticeship in such an inhospitable environment, therefore, honed his survival skills to a fine caliber. And all these skills gained in wrangling horses, cattle, or other minor herds had an immediate application in the realm of pre-modern warfare. The vaquero became a natural cavalryman. He learned to fight, much as an Indian did. Many a time, mano a mano. In this type of conflict, firearms became useless, so he used a saber, a knife, or a macana, billy club, with agile skill. Sometimes he prevailed, sometimes he did not. End of Gallego's quote. Based on some of his later feats, we have every reason to believe that young Antonio was an excellent horseman. And this would have brought him to the attention of the older men of the community, who would have watched his development carefully to decide on the right time to invite him out on his first patrols north into the wild horse desert. And also, based on later evidence, it's probably not unreasonable to believe that young Antonio had something about him that simply drew other people to him. Maybe he was a naughty little boy, travieso, playing tricks on the priest during mass to the laughing approval of his friends. Or maybe he had a knack for including kids from different backgrounds into his games. Or maybe even at a young age, his peers could tell that his fearlessness would propel him to deeds that they could only dream of. In any case, it was clear that young Antonio had a certain charisma about him. A mischievous little angel that followed him all his life, attracting people to him and protecting him from harm. Which might explain why another charismatic Revillan took an interest in young Antonio. And this interest on its face is kind of surprising. Because for all the democratizing effect of the frontier that I've raved about, as they say in Mexico, hay niveles. There are still levels, classes, and they matter. And this charismatic Revillan was of a decidedly different level than young Antonio. He was descended from one of the founding families of Revilla. Actually, his grandfather had been running livestock near the future site of Revilla even before the Escandon expedition formally founded the town. That's actually how his grandfather had gotten hooked up with Escandon, because he already knew the land and because the Escandon expedition offered Grandpa a way to legalize an activity that he was already engaged in, namely, not paying taxes. Previously, he'd been avoiding them by grazing on lands that weren't properly monitored by tax collectors. By joining up with Escandon's first settlers, however, he won an official 10-year reprieve from what one contemporary referred to as, quote, the tyranny of the Alcabalas, end quote, the Spanish crown's rather exhaustive and far-reaching tax system. Even after that initial 10-year period expired, taxes would remain a touchy subject for residents of the Rio Grande Vias including for Grandpa's charismatic grandson. The charismatic grandson was a generation older than young Antonio Zapata, 23 years Antonio's senior. Unlike Antonio, this charismatic Ravian probably had received at least some form of primary education, if we're to judge from the fact that his brother went on to become a well-read and radical priest, and from the fact that we have an abundance of writings from the charismatic Ravian's pen himself. Using the power of his pen and the power of his words, this charismatic Ravian would go on to build one of the largest multi-ethnic armies that the continent had seen up to this point, an army which he often led from the front. He himself was a polymath of sorts, an accomplished rancher, a pretty talented merchant, and at least according to one account, a passable blacksmith. The charismatic Ravian that I'm talking about 
was none other than Jose Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara, protagonist of pretty much the entire second season of this podcast. And the impact that he's going to have on young Antonio's life is further proof of the reasons that we should all probably know more about him. Of course, the truth is that we don't know exactly how Gutierrez de Lara and Zapata came into each other's orbits. We just know that by the 1830s, they were partners in some pretty extensive stock-raising enterprises that must have been going on for years. In the context of such a small town like Revilla, and in the context of the intensely local, almost clannish allegiances of the region, I find it hard to believe that Gutierrez de Lara and Zapata hadn't known about each other from a fairly young age. Antonio Zapata would have been 13 in 1810, old enough to have started participating in some of his first Indian patrols, and I don't think it would be unfair to speculate that it might have been during these patrols that these two men began to develop a bond. The camaraderie of a campfire after a hard day in the saddle is a great place to really get to know someone, for an older man to size up a younger man, and for a younger man to learn from an older one. And now that I myself am crossing over into older man status, at least by the standards of the 1800s, and now that I have kids of my own, I'm going to make here a possibly controversial statement. You can tell things about kids, about their personalities, even from a pretty young age. It's a little uncomfortable to admit that. We Americans in particular like to believe that we can reinvent ourselves at any age. But if we're being honest, I think we'd admit that total personality reinventions are the exception and not the rule. The confident, inspiring, and charismatic adolescent more often than not turns into the confident, inspiring, and charismatic adult. And it seems reasonable to believe that a mature Gutierrez de Lara noticed something like this in young Antonio. Or, since we're speculating anyway, maybe it was an ambitious Antonio who made the first approach, seeing in Gutierrez de Lara's various enterprises an opportunity for himself to improve his fortunes. Gutierrez de Lara's core business was simple enough. Drive a herd of the nearly free-for-the-taking sheep, goats, cattle, and horses crawling all over the region. There were something like a million of them in the Rio Grande Villas in 1800. Drive them to New Orleans, sell them there, and then use the proceeds to buy things like cotton, tobacco, or even corn, and bring them back to the Rio Grande Villas, where you could sell it for two to four times what you paid for it. And even then, you'd still be half the price of what the official suppliers were selling it for. As I've commented many times in this podcast, Spanish monopolies, tariffs, and other mercantile laws created strong incentives for those living on the border to seek extra-legal ways to procure goods from foreign markets. Yes, you could buy your goods the legal way by buying them from middlemen who transported them from Cadiz to Veracruz to Mexico City to Caretaro, Saltillo, and then finally to the Rio Grande. Or... You could just go get them yourself in New Orleans for a fraction of the price. For example, 25 pounds of cotton sold for 2 to 4 pesos in the United States around this time, but for 7 to 8 pesos in Mexico, because technically imported cotton was illegal. A fanega of corn sold for less than 1 peso in Texas, but for 4 to 6 pesos in Mexico. And 100 pounds of tobacco could be bought for $1 to $1.50 in New Orleans and sold for $50 to $75 in Mexico. One historian estimates that by the end of the 1820s, two-thirds of the foreign products in Mexico had been imported without paying duties. And with margins like these, you can understand why. In the perverse way that restrictive trade systems often do, 
the Spanish mercantilist system essentially made smugglers out of honest citizens. No man wants to be a smuggler, but no man living on the edge of civilization should be asked to pay eight times a product's natural price just to enrich some distant monopolist. And moreover, what did all their taxes go toward anyway? They sure as hell didn't go toward defending the homes of the residents of the Rio Grande Vias, who had to look after that themselves, apparently. And so what kind of system made criminals out of the very men who were asked to defend the borders of the empire that their taxes supported, yet for which they got little more than contempt whenever they voiced their complaints? On September 16th, 1810, in the form of a parish priest, Gutierrez de Lara found a man who articulated his sense of grievance against Spanish rule better than anyone he had ever heard before. Gutierrez de Lara's full-throated support for Father Miguel Hidalgo might seem a bit strange, since the revolutionary priest put things more in terms of class and caste than in the crude commercial terms that you might have expected to appeal to the relatively prosperous son of a Creole rancher like Gutierrez de Lara. But issues of class and commerce were related, then as now, in a way that the 36-year-old Gutierrez de Lara intuitively understood. The privilege that he possessed as a Creole over the mestizo and mulatto members of his community was as arbitrary as the royal monopolies assigned to favorites of the king, and as unjust as the duties that were assessed on the residents of the perilous frontier to pay for the projects of the comfortable center. And so from the very start, Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara became an apostle for Father Hidalgo's revolt. At great personal risk, he developed, printed, and distributed material advocating that Spain's North American possessions should dissolve their allegiance to the distant monarch across the sea. And the people of the Rio Grande Vias, particularly in his hometown of Revilla, began to agree with him. Since their founding 53 years prior, they had seen for themselves how a community might organize itself without a strict adherence to a caste system. Most of them had worked alongside people of all different skin tones and bled the same blood in their joint fights against the Indios Barbaros. And Revillans of all backgrounds had felt the neglect of their distant government that viewed them more as a source of revenue than as fellow citizens worthy of protection. But just as his fellow residents of the Rio Grande began to come around to Gutierrez de Lara's way of seeing things, fortunes turned against Father Hidalgo. After reaching the outskirts of Mexico City, Hidalgo's ragtag army was put to flight by royalist forces, and then pursued all the way to Guadalajara, where the royalists routed Hidalgo's army. Hidalgo and his closest allies went into full-fledged retreat at that point, through the central highlands of Mexico and up into Saltillo. From there, Hidalgo's plan was to try to get to San Antonio, amongst the famously independent-minded inhabitants of Texas, and closer to sympathetic sources of support in the United States. Sensing the criticalness of the moment, in March of 1811, Gutierrez de Lara resolved to ride out to Father Hidalgo's aid, with 12 of his most trusted companions from Revilla. 14-year-old Antonio Zapata was just a little too young to ride with him, but not too young to follow attentively everything that Gutierrez de Lara would make happen in Texas over the next two and a half years. On the next episode of The Republic of the Rio Grande. Thank you for listening. This episode, by the way, was recorded at the Rivers Pierce Foundation in San Ignacio, Zapata County. And I gotta tell you, this town is incredible. It's like a preserved Spanish colonial ranching village on the Texas side of the border. 
I really recommend folks make a trip down here because I'm also pretty sure that this place is due to get discovered by a broader audience soon. You can check it out at posadapaloma.com. In February of 2022, we'll be conducting almost a month's worth of field work to uncover archaeological evidence for the location of the Battle of Medina, the largest battle in Texas history. If you want to learn more about the battle, go back and listen to season two of this series. If you want to learn more about our search and our partnership with the 501c3 American Veterans Archaeological Recovery Project, go to www.brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. The portrait of Antonio Zapata that serves as the cover art for this season was created by artist Matt Tumlinson. Check him out at Matt underscore Tumlinson on Instagram. Sound engineering for this episode was performed by Stephen Bennett, who also arranged and performed the theme music. The theme music was actually written, however, by Mercurio Martinez, a Zapata County rancher, county treasurer, school principal, and descendant of one of Escandon's founding families. Martinez was the co-author of the first history of Zapata County, which he titled The Kingdom of Zapata. And in his spare time, he penned Corridos, Well, I found one of his corridos in his collected papers at Texas A&M's Cushing Library, and in that corrido, Martinez had written a melody that he had intended for his Corrido de la Presa, the story of the construction of Lake Falcón, and of his role in preserving what he could of the communities later lost to the lake. I love that we've been able to bring back to life this melody here, and I thank Stephen for it. You can check out Stephen's work at Media. that's N-O-S-O-Media.com. I want to call out here for recognition the work of Juan Jose Gallegos. A retired NASA engineer, Gallegos went back to get a master's in history from the University of Houston and produced an incredible thesis dedicated to the life of Antonio Zapata, which in part inspired this season. Thanks as well to Professor Stan Green at Texas A&M University in Laredo. Professor Green actually has a book coming out soon about these events and others, currently titled Las Villas del Norte, a history from 1748 to 1821. Definitely don't miss the Museum of the Republic of the Rio Grande in downtown Laredo if you're ever there. They have brand new exhibits that they've just opened telling more of the story that we're recounting here. And if you're interested in the history or genealogy of the Villas del Norte, check out Moises de la Garza's website, lasviasdelnorte.com. Thanks additionally to Cesar Hinojosa, my touring buddy for these old towns in Mexico, and descendant himself of some of the first founders of the lower Rio Grande. And thank you to Javier Cervantes with the Tapilán Coahuiltecan Nation, and Juan Mancias with the Carrizo Come Crudo Nation for their guidance too. For more information generally, check out our website at www.brandonseal.com.